Well, we are in that time of year where things get busy, and it seems like they just get crazier and busier. And just this last week, Rachel and I flew in from St. Paul, Minnesota, late last Sunday night. I don't even think we'd gotten unpacked. She went to work on Monday, and Rachel texts me Monday evening and says that she's been rear-ended on I-94 on her way home from work. So I call her, and she says that she's okay, but she's sitting on the side of the highway waiting for the police to come. And so, of course, me being the anxious person that I am, that I'm trying not to be but still am, I'm like, are you sure you're not just like in shock? You know, do you need an ambulance to come? Are you able to kind of assess how you're doing? And she's like, no, truly, I'm okay. I'm just waiting for the cops. I'll be home pretty soon. But as you can imagine, like those minutes between that phone call and her actually walking through the door are just kind of excruciating. I took a shower in case I needed to take her to the hospital. And <laughs> I did the dishes. I did anything I could kind of do. I just needed to know that she was really okay. And I know that when things seem uncertain, waiting is one of the most difficult things for us humans. So as you know, we are in the second week of Advent here. And Advent is the season of waiting on the Christian calendar. So it's a time that we practice waiting on the coming of Jesus as we prepare to celebrate his birth at Christmas time. So Advent is a Latin word, it just means coming. And not only does the church practice celebrating the first coming of Christ, but also his anticipated second coming. So part of the Christian hope is that Jesus will come again and that his presence and his love and his peace will fill the earth. And we believe as Christians, we're part of extending that right now, his kingdom of love and justice and peace but clearly his kingdom has not fully come as we look around the world and we see so many of these things absent. And so we wait, and waiting is hard. So Ken spoke last week about how Israel's prophets, they painted visions of hope to help them get through the waiting, especially through waiting in particularly horrible or barren seasons. So we're gonna look at one of those visions that was presented today. And for this series, I don't know if Ken mentioned this last week, but we're using the readings from uh, the lectionary, which is not our normal practice. So for those of you who, like me, did not grow up in a, a church where you knew what the lectionary was, I had no idea. Um, it's a collection of like set readings of scripture that are preached on every single week in various denominational churches. So like the Episcopal churches, the American Baptist churches, the Presbyterian churches, I think all of the Lutheran churches, they all use this set collection of scriptures that they preach from every Sunday, and so they're preaching on the same things. So at Blue Ocean, we have a reading. You know, like one of the kids comes up here and reads every Sunday. That's what that's from, so that helps us sort of join with the larger church. But Ken and I usually don't preach from it because we can find it to be a little bit disjointed and I think a little more helpful to have thematic sermons. But for Advent, I thought, you know, it feels like especially meaningful to sort of dip into this stream and sort of dive into some of these same sermons that the rest of the church is also preaching as we celebrate the coming of Christmas together. So the lectionary scripture that was read this morning so well by Abby Middaw was from Isaiah 11. And it talked about how a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then it goes on and it talks about how the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will live with the goat and so on. And so to get this, we're actually going to back up a little bit, and we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah the prophet, he's writing during this time of like national decline and conflict and warfare. And so what he's doing is in the midst of all of this conflict and warfare, he's offering his people like a vision of hope. 
And so he has this vision of God, and it goes like this. Isaiah 6, 1 to 4, it says, In that year, King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord, high and exalted, and he was seated on a throne. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Now, if you can imagine, in your mind's eye, that's a big robe. And above him were seraphim, they were angels, and they each had six wings. Two of the wings covered their eyes, two of the wings covered their feet, and with the other two, they were flying. And these angels were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorposts, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds, they shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, this idea that I'm picturing with this temple building shaking and filling with smoke, to me that sounds a little bit disturbing. You know, it's almost like maybe the angel should go pull a fire alarm or get out, right? That doesn't seem like an image that conveys like safety and holiness, more like panic. But these images of the earth shaking or the temple shaking and of dark clouds filling space or smoke filling space are actually common images in scripture used to describe the presence of God. So I remember a few years back seeing it and just getting kind of curious about it. And so I went through all of the scripture to try and figure out like where clouds and thick darkness explain the presence of God. I just wanted to look at it. And it's actually, it's not employed that often, but when it is, it usually indicates that there's like an intense experience of the presence of God happening. You know, it's like the author's letting us know that there's something big going on. So like when Abraham falls into a deep sleep, it says that they're like thick darkness surrounds him and God comes to him and talks to him about his covenant with him. Or on Mount Sinai, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, he's surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. And there's a couple of Psalms that talk about clouds and thick darkness surrounding the throne of God. It's almost as if God is like so majestic that his face has to be hidden from us mere mortals. Now, I don't think that in the entirety of scripture that this is like the whole picture of God, right? Jesus is the best and most complete picture of God that we have. And Jesus is earthy and accessible, and I think still accessible to us today. But there is this biblical conception that there's a part of God, a piece of God's character that is so overwhelmingly other that we humans can't fully understand it. You know, as St. Paul wrote, he said, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then in the next age we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Right, so it's kind of interesting because in the Bible, there's actually several paradoxes associated with God. Like God has things that seem like they're contradictory with inside of him or herself, right? He's both human and divine, both accessible and mysterious. He's present in the small things, in the everyday parts of our life, but he's also unfathomably large. He's strong, the strongest force in the universe, but also vulnerable, coming to us in the form of a baby or dying naked on a cross at the hands of humans, both male and female, or maybe neither male nor female. So this image that Isaiah is using is he's trying to depict one of these characteristics of God and it's part of this like holiness and intense presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the angels sing. Right? And to be holy, it just simply means to be set apart. I think many people have been taught that holiness means like purity, but it does, it just means set apart. And so Isaiah, he's seeing this picture in his mind, this great king with all of the singing angels around the throne and the temple shaking and the smoke coming in, and he gets overcome by his feelings of unworthiness. 
He's feeling like he can't be part of this otherness, this set-apartness, because he's so small and he's so insignificant. And because he's human, and he's as guilty as all of us other humans of not bearing witness to God in the way that maybe we know to bear witness of God. Right? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But then something kind of astonishing happens in the vision after this. So an angel goes over, and the angel takes some tongs, and he goes over to the altar of God, and it's described as having like sort of fire burning on it, and he takes a coal from that, and he goes over to Isaiah, and he touches that hot coal to Isaiah's lips, and he says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Right? In other words, he's saying, you're worthy. You're not too insignificant. And this picture, I think, is especially astonishing because in the Hebrew tradition, when something is considered like unclean or impure, if something like that touches something that's considered clean or pure, well, the pure thing gets made unclean. Does that make sense? So, like, if you washed your hands really well, right? Your hands are super clean. I was trying to think of something like kind of filthy but isn't like too gross to talk about. <laughs> Let's say you go and you touch some like used cat litter. Your clean hands are now dirty, right? <laughs> they become unclean. But here, Isaiah, he's calling himself unclean. He's calling himself like the cat litter. He's standing in the presence of God, but God is not made unclean by Isaiah, right? But rather, God's touch makes him clean or worthy, right? His presence touching our lives, I think, makes us worthy to respond to him and to be part of his grand vision for humans. It doesn't have anything to do with like our cleanness or our goodness. And this idea of needing to be clean, to be worthy of experiencing God, I think is a misconception that some of us have depending on what part of the church that we've grown up in. Right, so Isaiah, he hears God's voice say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And God is asking like, who's, who's willing to be part of helping extend my presence and my love and my peace and my joy on this earth? And as we know, that's no easy task, right? It's hard enough just to live, much less to always live out of a place of love and peace and justice. And God is looking for volunteers to live lives that can testify to this way of living. And so Isaiah, he famously says, here am I, send me. And it's interesting because I like, God doesn't force anyone to do anything. Like he doesn't come to Isaiah and be like, look, I'm a lot bigger than you are. You're signed up or else. Who will go for me? He calls the willing, not the special. And so Isaiah just expresses his willingness to do as God leads. But then God tells him something really strange at the end of this vision. God says, okay, well, what I'd like for you to do to help bear witness to who I am is I want you to go and tell the people what you know about me, about my goodness. And I want you to call them to love the poor and the outcast as an expression of that and to care for the widow, and to care for the foreigners who are living among you. But be warned that they're going to hear you saying that, but they're not going to understand you. And they're going to see you, but they're not going to perceive the depth of what it is that you're saying to them. And so Isaiah, he's like, okay, well, how long will they not understand and will they not perceive? And God says, well, until their cities lie in ruins. You're going to tell them and tell them and tell them and you are going to call them to live in a way that will bring peace and prosperity to them, but they are not going to choose to do it. And the natural consequences of that will come about, and their cities will lie in ruins. But God says, don't worry, Isaiah. As the terebinth and the oak trees leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
It's an odd thing. It says, just as trees leave stumps when they're cut down, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That's just a funny word, isn't it? Like my cousin's last name is Stump. Stumps. <laughs> right? The picture, it's like a forest or a nation that he's looking over and it's just filled with trees that have been cut down. Right? So he's going from the fullness in this vision to this barrenness across the land. I mean, when Isaiah started this vision, he talks about God and his train, right? his robe filling the temple. And the word that's used there in the Hebrew, it conveys something that we don't quite capture in the English. So the Hebrew there that's used for fill, like the robe filling the temple, is in a tense that indicates that the verb is continuing. Right? So it's more like God's train fills and continues to fill and continues to fill and continues to fill and fill the temple. Right? Like God's presence, it's coming and coming and coming into the emptiness. And it's a similar idea to what the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament when he talks about the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit continues to fill believers with the presence of God. It's a similar tense. It keeps coming and coming and coming. That when we feel empty and dry, when we need strength to keep going and strength to keep loving and strength to keep pursuing justice in this world that seems to beat that down, it's like God can come and overwhelm us with his comfort and his power and he will keep on coming. That's his promise. Right, so Isaiah is there and God's train and his presence continue to come and fill this empty space and the angels are there and they're singing about God's glory filling the entire earth and then he's got the smoke that symbolizes God's intense presence coming and filling in all of those empty spaces, filling the void. There's all this fullness. But then when the people ignore the path of peace that's laid out by God and their cities are laid to ruin, suddenly there's this picture of like emptiness. Right, this land that's burned to the ground that's filled with stumps. So when I was a kid, my parents took us three girls, me and my two younger sisters, um, out to Yellowstone Park. And we stayed in one of those like rustic cabins out there. And this was like not long after like Yellowstone had burned a lot. Do you guys remember that? Like I think it was in the late 80s that quite a bit of Yellowstone had just burned down. And I had seen some kind of photo contest, and I don't remember where, it was probably in like my world magazine, like Kids National Geographic or something. And it was asking for people to submit photos that, that like were indicating um, hope, some kind of photo depicting hope. And so I had this very specific picture in mind when I went out to Yellowstone that I wanted to capture. So I had this idea that my dad could drive us out to like some of those burned out areas, which you could get to, and I could get a picture of like the charred ground and all of the stumps from the trees that had burned down and find like one flower peeking through. And I thought, surely this won't be too hard, right? So I'm armed with my $30, you know, camera that takes Kodak film. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking for some life to photograph in some of that blackened ground. Like this is, I remember the area, I remember this one particular place just looking and for acres and acres over hills just seeing nothing but burned out trees and stumps. And I couldn't find a single shot worth taking. You know, like there would be a little bit of brush here and there. There might be even some grass, but there was not a beautiful flower like peeking up like I envisioned there would be. There was nothing that screamed hope. And so looking over these acres of land, I thought it was hard to imagine that that forest would ever be able to like come back and revive and thrive. It seemed like everything was gone. It's like maybe the people of Gatlinburg are feeling this week. I don't know if you guys read about that, but much of Gatlinburg burned. It's like 17,000 acres. And it's difficult to look at land that's been that ravished and just like have an imagination for something to be there again. 
And yet, we know that the seeds and the roots live on beneath the ground, and they do eventually find their way upward, right? And the forest becomes healthy again. I was reading this book a couple of months back. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. If you want to know something a little bit funny about uh, Ken and I and how we work together, I read about this, this um, it was like a preview in the New York Times. This is totally off topic. But, so it was in the New York Times. They were talking about this really cool book. You know, we're just talking about like how trees can communicate to one another. But it was only in German, and it wasn't being translated for like six months. So I pre-ordered it from Amazon, only to find out Ken had also read the same New York Times review and pre-ordered it, and we were reading it at the same time. That's a little scary. <laughs> but in this book, which is a lovely book, it talks about how some tree stumps remain alive for hundreds of years. Like even after the tree itself has like either fallen down or been cut down. Now, the majority of stumps in a forest, actually, they do die, but every now and then, there's one, especially the ones that have deep roots that are like deeply connected to the other trees around them, that manages to live on. And so this is the picture that comes to my mind when I read Isaiah 6 and 11. Right, it's like Isaiah 6 with this vision, it leaps off with God saying, the land is gonna be filled with stumps, empty and void. But amidst these stumps, there will be a stump that lives. There will be a holy seed in the land. Right? There'll be a seed that's set apart, one that's living among the dead ones that will eventually sprout back to life. So what is the stump? Right? What does Isaiah mean? Well, this is where I think we jump to Isaiah 11 because these two chapters really go together. So Isaiah 11:1 1, that Abby read for us this morning says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Right, so this could sound a little bit cryptic, but the stump is described as the stump of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. Right, so it's Jesse, David, Solomon. And in the Christian tradition, we believe that Jesus was born out of that same genealogical line as Jesse and David. So overwhelmingly, Christians who look at these verses, we look at this and we think, oh, that shoot coming up from the stump from that same genealogical line is actually Jesus, that Jesus is that shoot of life that's coming up in the midst of the barrenness to give us hope. So Isaiah goes on to describe this shoot that's coming up from the stump of Jesse. And he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So I know that this person who's being described in Isaiah isn't described as coming and like striking the earth with like a sword or a gun or a nuclear weapon. He's described as coming and striking with the rod of his mouth, right, with his words and with his decrees and with the breath of his lips. So in the midst of living in this time of conflict and sensing that this conflict is not going to go well for his people, Isaiah is envisioning a time for them when something beautiful will again arise from this land of his people, that someone from the line of David, someone living a life that's set apart from the crowd, is going to come and set things to rights, and not by violence, but by the words that he speaks and by the breath that he breathes. 
right? The Holy Spirit, the word that's used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the breath of God in our tradition. So Isaiah envisions this person bringing justice to the poor and to the needy and bringing about the kind of peace that causes animals who would normally not coexist peacefully as eating together and playing together, right? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. I was talking with uh, one of the guys who works at Cultivate Coffee this week and he said he was reading this verse to his kids, his six-year-old and four-year-old and and some of his nieces and nephews. And he said he was reading it to them and at first they were like, ah, okay, we got to read scripture with dad, whatever. He goes, but I started reading it to them and they just started giggling. And he's like, well, what's so funny? And they were just picturing what this would look like. And he's like, can you imagine? Like, it's like the joy of the eyes of a child, the ridiculousness of a lion chewing straw like a cow, the ridiculousness of a child petting a snake. And I hate snakes, so I don't even like to think about it. <laughs> but he's like, they were just giggling and giggling. And I thought, you know, that is actually capturing something of Isaiah here that at least I don't normally see. And that's this idea that this vision of hope that comes up, it can actually bring you a lot of joy too. And that God has a sense of humor and the way he conveys it to us can actually make us laugh a little bit. Isaiah says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Right, so on the one hand, in our tradition, these chapters, we see them as prophecies, as pointing to Jesus who was born several hundred years later and to how he lived. Keys, he provided us keys with living a life that where we love our neighbors as ourselves, that can revolutionize the world. But on the other hand, I think Isaiah was also speaking something to a hurting people. You know, his people were hurting and it's a promise that in spite of the emptiness and the devastation that they were feeling all around them, that the seed of the holy, the seed of the witness of who God is was still present among them. Right, that God is always present, even in the dry and the barren land. And eventually that seed will flourish again. You know, a few years back, I did a little bit of work in Eastern Africa for a few months. And so one of my friends was a wonderful German woman named Krista. And she was a nurse and kind of a mentor to me. And she worked primarily with Somalis in the, in the Horn of Africa and so she lived for a few years like in the northern part of Somalia doing work, like medical work in a women's clinic there. And so when I was with her in Eastern Africa, I, it was really hard. And I just talked to her about like, you know, how do you keep going? How do you keep doing what you're doing? You know, it's like one of the driest places on earth. It's one of the most impoverished places on earth. It's had civil war for two decades. It's a place where it's like the government and the civil structures don't work on a level that we can't even imagine. And I said, how do you just keep going? It's a little bit even scary to live here. And she's just said, oh, Emily. Actually, oh, Emily, there is always hope. She said, we live as Christians. This is part of who we are. We live in such a way that says that there's always hope. That even when things look hopeless for us in our own lives or hopeless for an entire people or nation, and you're wondering like how things can ever improve, she said, it might take decades to rebuild or generations, but there is always hope. And it's our task to keep the seed of that hope alive in this land. And so that's actually become one of my life mottos. I say, love always wins and there's always hope. Love always wins, there is always hope. 
right? That we live as if the seed of the holy lives inside of us. The seed of the holy witness of God's love and his justice is always present, even if it looks like the entire forest has burned down. And the waiting in between is hard, but this is what we do during Advent, is we practice waiting expectantly. So now I'm gonna close here with a, just a short three-minute guided meditation. So for those of you who are new or who are visiting us, we always take two or three minutes to either have some silence or a little bit of guided meditation. So to start, I'm just gonna have you just, you can close your eyes if you want, you don't have to, but just start by taking some deep breaths, like really good deep ones that fill your, fill your lungs up. get comfortable. Pay attention to your body. Just feel the chair underneath you. Feel your feet on the ground. My feet don't touch the ground in a chair, but if yours do, pay attention to that. Just notice any tension in your muscles. Just note it. And as you're breathing in, you can just imagine some of your breaths being focused on some of those places in your body where you carry your tension. In your neck, in your knees. Imagine that you're in a temple in the middle of a forest. Just look around. What do you see? What's it made of? What does it look like? What does it sound like? does it smell like? Maybe you look around the forest and you notice one of those lions eating straw like an ox. Maybe you see a wolf and a lamb kind of cuddling together. And as you're looking around in this space, you notice that Jesus is standing nearby. And you walk toward him and he's smiling at you. He's happy to see you. As you're standing there, think of a part of your life where you could just use some hope right now. Whether that's in a relationship with your family, your friends, a romantic partner, Maybe you need some hope for your work or for your dating life, your health, your kids, overcoming a habit or an addiction.
Now in your mind, just tell Jesus that you could use some hope in that area. We're not asking God to solve the issue right now, but just to give you hope that there's something more for you there. Maybe something you can't see yet. Just notice if, well, if anything unusual is going on in your mind, if there are certain thoughts coming to mind, if there's anything Jesus is saying to you, maybe just notice any feelings that you're having in regards to that space. It's okay if you're not experiencing anything. I think confessing our need for hope is a sacred act. But if you are experiencing something, just sort of note it. In that space, I'm just going to pray into that place. That Father, for all of these things where we're just asking for some hope in our lives in these spaces, we invite your presence to come and to begin to fill those voids, Lord. Begin to fill those spaces. And we ask that you would do that in that verb tense that's like continuing, Lord, that your presence would come and would continue to come and that we would experience that unfolding in our lives and in the lives of the people who are around us. We ask that your spirit would just breathe hope into us so that we can in turn breathe hope into the world around us. And like Isaiah, Lord, give us strength to live as if there is always hope. Here we are, send us. We will bear witness to your love as best we can in all of the areas of our lives with your help. In the name of Jesus, amen.